Rio de Janeiro. With a big man. Kaya, assalamu alaikum, g'day, and welcome to Frio de Janeiro. My name is Abir Imam, and I'm coming to you from Wadilup, or Fremantle, Western Australia. Now, a big part of this town is the Fremantle Dockers AFL Club. And when we reflect on why we might support a sports team, it could be because of that sense of feeling represented or being part of something bigger than yourself. That's exactly how I feel, having grown up alongside the Frio Dockers. So on this episode, I'm joined by Simon Garlick, the CEO of Frio. He's an esteemed sports leader and also had a really successful AFL career at the Sydney Swans and Western Bulldogs. It was great to talk about his journey, sports business, what it means to be the CEO of a high-profile sports organisation. This was a really great treat and hopefully it's informative for yourself and entertaining to footy fans and those interested in leadership. Thanks a lot to Sightbeat for supporting the show and a big thanks as well to Evelina Palmiotti from Frio who helped in the background. Without further ado, let's get into it. Simon, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. As someone who is a massive Fremantle fan, you know, it means a lot to uh, my family, as we were just talking about, but also to have someone who's the CEO, a custodian of our club, uh, being able to join me is uh, really exciting. So I can't wait to go through a lot of lot of areas with yourself. But firstly, I'm fascinated, mate, by your own journey in football. And I want to know what's your first memory in footy? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks, Biddy, for having me on. I'm more than happy to come on. We obviously know a bit about your passion for the club and connection from way back when. So more than pleased to have a chat to you. And hopefully this reaches a number of other um, Purple Army members along the way. Um, it's interesting you use the word custodian, which is which is exactly right and something that we touch upon a fair bit. And I'm sure at some stage we'll talk a little bit about our strategic plan and the purpose and vision and anchors as we call them in our organization and one of the real themes through that is that element of custodian that that while our club's relatively young at at 27 years of age um, clearly we all see it going to be here for not only another 27 years but probably another 270 years at at the very least so we're all here those of us lucky enough to work in roles at the club are here um, passing through and it's really our role as we see it to do everything we possibly can to make it better than what we found it. And that's going to be hard because there's so much that's great about our club, but clearly there's things we're continuing to work on. So really excited time and pleased to talk to, to you about it all, Biddy. Um, mate, in terms of my start in footy, um, it was it was probably not not too unconventional, really. I, I grew up in southeast Melbourne, in the in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, a place called Glen Waverley, which, you know, some of your, listen, your, your dedicated podcast listeners as we'll, we'll understand, um, based on Waverley Park, which no longer is an AFL ground. It's Hawthorne's home uh, training base. But um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was a kid, when I was young, uh, that was the end of the train line and it was nearly nearly rural. It's only about 30 k's out of Melbourne and these days is pretty much in a city. But back then um, I had a what I'd call a spectacularly unspectacular childhood in the sense that it was – I had – you know, great family, loving family was, you know, we weren't overly affluent, but never wanted for anything. And it really was that childhood where 
you know, sport was a real focus, getting out on your bike all weekend, leaving at 8 a.m., coming home at 6 p.m. at night for dinner. Um, heap of physical activity was was central to it all. Um, school got in the way there occasionally um, for a lot of us, but that was sort of by the by. And, you know, everything, it was traditional in the sense of traditional Aussie sporting kids upbringing, I suppose, footy in the winter and cricket in the summer. Um, so my early memories are just doing that with my siblings and my friends um and then the local junior footy club was a was a club called the Glen waverley rovers and um started there and that was sensational we were we had a good club and we were strong and there were plenty of kids in the area so we didn't lack for teams um and we were quite successful too and just loved playing with your mates like everyone does you didn't worry too much about winning and losing it was just playing footy so that was a fantastic experience and and we were in back in that was in the zoning days so um each vfl club at that time had a zone and glen waverley was in the southeast zone and so we were zoned to richmond as a as a club and again whilst you were a young kid i didn't think a lot about it but once i got to 15 and 16 and was was getting picked in some representative sides that sort of stuff started to come into focus and yeah we had some great players at, at the Rovers at the local footy club, um, you know, the Kellaway brothers, Stewie Maxfield, a whole range of guys who ended up going on playing for Richmond. Um, the zones finished when I was 16, so I ended up playing an under-18 competition and then then got drafted to Sydney from there. So very, very ordinary, but it's really enjoyable upbringing in terms of sport and footy in particular, Biddy. When you watch the draft these days, it's a protracted, comprehensive process. You think back to when you were drafted, it was, right, I understand, the first ever televised draft. What do you remember of that evening? Yeah, October 1993, Biddy, you're right, it was the first televised draft. And I remember because I wasn't an absolute lock to get drafted. You know, I'd spoken to about six clubs, um, had a really um, good under-18 footy club year that, that year, and certainly thought I was a chance, but wasn't a lock. So I just remember um, sending, I don't even know if dad was home. I think mum was home. I, I sent her upstairs and I just watched it on my own downstairs. And <laughs> um, and it was obviously very hopeful that would occur because that was the dream. And pick 49, Sydney Swans um, read out my name. And it was a bit of a blur, to be honest. I um, It was just a, that, that immediate sense of elation. And then very quickly, the phone started ringing. And interestingly enough, as a bit of a side, um, the first phone call was from David Parkin. So those who know footy, um, Parko was their then coach of Carlton, um, obviously played at Hawthorne, was captain, premiership captain, went to coach Carlton, premierships at Carlton. But his, his other real passion in life is university and, and, and lecturing students, um, and particularly in sports administration and and um, physiology and the like. And, and Parko was my lecturer at university. I was doing sports management at Deakin University. And he called me, really was, was literally the first person to call me and said, straight away was down to business. He said, congratulations, well done. Uh, we were going to pick you up a couple of picks later. Sydney got in. Um, and by the way, I've already spoken to a colleague of mine at the University of New South Wales, a colleague of mine at University of Western Sydney. We're going to be able to get you a few credits in the subjects of this year and we'll get you into uni. And it sort of blew me away at the time because he's a guy who's coaching a team. He just lost a grand final to Essendon to the baby Bombers. He was about to coach one of the greatest teams of all time in 95, yet he was worried about this pimply-faced kid who'd been in a few of his university lectures. And it, and it brought home that notion of education and the importance of it, which was something that my parents had certainly fostered in us as kids, but it really rushed that home. And um, 
Ron Barassi, who was a coach of Sydney, was the second person to call me um, and had a good chat to him. He said, great, fantastic, the hard work starts now, all of the stuff you'd expect a coach like Ron Barassi to say. Uh, and then the mates started piling over. And my first contract bid, he was um, for a base salary of $7,500, the princely sum of $7,500 for the year. But um, that night, my mates all thought I was a millionaire because I was shouting drinks at the at the local pub. But um, it was a, it was a pretty cool day, and and then a couple of weeks later, I was up in Sydney getting into it. I love that you brought up David Parkin because that was something that was on the list here. Where looking on YouTube, there's a video that only has 160 something views, where you are immaculately decked yeah. out in your academic regalia, giving yeah. a speech to Victoria University, where you do mention David Parkin. And what's interesting is you were already interested in sport management before you got drafted. Mm. So what was it like where you could pretty much come into the real world of a, the four walls of a football club and it was like uh, studying in real life? What was that yeah. like for you? Yeah, it's a really good point. I um, obviously was living the primary dream of playing AFL footy. That's what I wanted to do, had, had wanted to do from a very young age. And that was obviously the focus. But you're right, you're getting an inside view into the running of a professional sporting club. And as you say, that was a real interest of mine and had been for a fair while. So, um, you know, little things, the, the, the CEO of the Swans at the time, and you've got to remember the Swans were a, a struggling entity, and a, not only club but entity in full, you know, full that bottom of the ladder those previous few years. Um, and the AFL had sent a, a veteran administrator called Ron Joseph up to, to Sydney to help straighten things out, really. Ron had overseen North Melbourne's rise to success in the 70s. He'd exploited the 10-year rule and recruited a vast number of players and was an architect behind them winning the 75 and 77 flag and had been involved a lot in football since then. So Ron came up to Sydney and um, he, Ronnie, was a, a, a very different individual. Um, and those that know Ronnie well will know what I'm saying there, but a passionate man and you know, highly um, intelligent, um, ruthless negotiator, but... It, he had a real care for, for the players under his watch as well. And what Sydney did in that 1993 draft for the first time in I don't know how long, but they just focused on going to the draft and drafting as much young talent as they could. They had the number one pick, a mate of mine called Darren Gasper from WA, a Frio boy actually, South Frio boy. Um, he got picked at number one and then they had a whole raft of picks because they'd been so poor and I think had a few concession picks. And instead of going for recycled players from other clubs, they went to, to, to youth. And so they did that that year. Um, they had Paul, a young Paul Kelly who was about to win a Brownlow in 95. Andrew Dunkley is a cornerstone defender, recruited Paul Roos, recruited Tony Lockett. So started to build a foundation. Stewie Maxfield came up there, Craig O'Brien. So they did a really strong list build in that sense. So to be able to watch Ron and he, he used to take young players out for dinner and because we were all up there without families and mm. And, and he used to look after us in that sense. So I really got to know him and talk to him about and, and, and press his brain on a few things. So that probably, to your point, he only encouraged my enthusiasm to think a bit about the administration of sport. And footy was obviously the focus, but I had a passion for a whole bunch of different sports. So it was a, it was a, yeah, a really interesting time. Were you pretty unique amongst the playing group or players at the time to be studying while having a professional career as a footy player? Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a fascinating time because it was really that transition period from, from part-time professional to full-time professional. There was still a number of the older players within the cohort of a, of a footy club who were working, having jobs, 
and we're still training in the afternoons or, or evenings, maybe doing some stuff early in the morning. But they used to do that, certainly in my first three or four years, so 94 through, I'd say, 98, to accommodate guys who were still working. Mm. Um, you know, they, Most of them would have understanding employers or be doing their own thing because it was difficult to do both. Um, but in those early years, um, studying actually fit really well. And um, I, I had a bit of an attitude the whole way through my career, which I think in hindsight helped me have sort of 11 years in the system, was that I, I treated it and assumed that each contract I got was going to be my last one. So, so I better do something else because I don't want to just come out of footy, whether it be, you know, my first contract was a three-year deal, then I think I got another two-year deal, then a couple of three-year deals. I just thought I don't want to come out of any of them and not have something to fall back upon. And it quickly became apparent for me that I actually played better footy when I had a uni assignment due or studying, cramming for exams, because as much as professionals footy is, you can only train for a certain amount of time per day before it becomes counterproductive. We actually, you know, you you need to, to let the boys go and do some other things. So if you've got something active and, and, something that is of value, then it just helps your state of mind too. Because inevitably, footies, there are some great highs in footy, but inevitably you're injured or you're out of the team for form. And when a lot of your identity is attached to that and it's not going well, if there's nothing else, then it can become an issue. And it's certainly something we see that's prevalent today and we've got a real emphasis on on all of our players doing something meaningful. It doesn't have to be study. You know, your academia doesn't suit every person. We know that's for sure. But doing something meaningful with their time is actually a real benefit to, to the boys rather than any sort of hindrance. And I, I, uh, to answer your original question, I was probably a little bit unusual, but, you know, that's certainly become far more the norm these days, which is really good. Would love to zoom in a little bit on your career where 181 games over 11 seasons, Sydney, Western Bulldogs. When I reflect back on watching you play, it was sort of when I was, um, you know, just getting into footy. So I remember you as a really... A hardworking player who forged a career at a, at a club where, well, you made the grand final at Sydney. I'm really interested in knowing that um, what were your reflections on some of the, the legends that you played with, yeah. the, the Plugger Lockets or the Chris Grants? What was yeah. it like to, to see that perspective of their career? Well, thanks for your, for your kind recollection of my playing career, Edie. Um, you're all one of the few who might remember it. And I like the term hardworking. That, that essentially, if you if you translate that, that, that I reckon is battler is what we're talking about, which is very <laughs> accurate, mate. Um, but no, I, I was very fortunate. The Sydney experience was unbelievable because at, at the time there were a few players that the competition was turning into the AFL. I mean, obviously West Coast came in 87, Crows came in shortly after. So it was very much becoming a national competition, but it was still getting there. And there were some young players who didn't want to travel interstate. And, and I mentioned Gas before. He was initially one who was a bit reticent. We had Shannon Grant and Anthony Rocker that we drafted at Sydney the year after. We went up there in 95 for the 95 season who were both a bit reticent to, to move. Um, I was more like, nah, you know, I was pick 49, so beggars can't be choosers, but I was like, can't wait to get into it. You know, I would have went anywhere to play AFL footy. And in hindsight, going into state can sometimes be a real positive because you're there for that purpose. So that was a great experience. And as I said, I talked a bit about the formation of the list and, you know, 94 was a tough year. We won four games. Um, 95, we won eight games and, and knocked over a strong Collingwood side in the last round, which gave us real impetus going into 96. 
Um, Rodney came in. Rodney Ede came in in '96 as a as a young, you know, fresh, innovative coach after Barras had done a really good job laying the foundations. And then we just caught fire. You know, as I said before, Paul Kelly um, was just was was near close to unstoppable as just this you know bollocking midfielder who just had unbelievable speed and strength um, and was just a great leader and a great bloke. Um, he and Plugger built a remarkable friendship, both country boys, Kel from, from Wagga and, and Plugger from Ballarat. And so they just hit it off like a house on fire. Um, you combine that with Ruzi, who was playing brilliant footy. You know, I think he plays 350th in, in 96. So, you know, he's 350 games, clearly coming towards the end, but was in brilliant form. Talked about Dunkley, who'd, who'd get the tough jobs. Um, you know, whether it be on Carey, it was it was unbelievable at the time, Ablett, um, Dunstall, and when did a fantastic job. Dunks wasn't the most skilled player, but he's a brilliant defender. And then you had this young talent coming through. So Shannon Grant, unbelievably talented player who was just starting his career. Uh, Mickey, a young Mickey O'Loughlin. Uh, I was lucky enough to live with Mickey for the first period of his time up in Sydney you know, finding his feet but just showing signs of what we ended up seeing for over 300 games and, you know, Hall of Famer and all-time great. Um, young Leo Barry, who didn't get a lot of game time in 1995-96 but ended up, you know, taking such a remarkable mark and being a brilliant player. So this mix of youth and experience, which is what we're seeing in some of the great list builds of all time, just meant that it all started to come together. And we got on a run. Sydney got behind us, you know, the the, the – SCG was full, and that place when it's full is as good a ground to play at in Australia. And you're right, I, I got to play with some of the all-time greats. Pl- plugger for mine still. Uh, I got to play, um, you know, against Carey, Ablett, Dunstall. Then um, the mids, I was lucky enough to play very closely to, you know, with Voss and Hurd and play on the likes of Carey and Cousins and the rest of them. But plugger still for mine is the best I ever played with or against. Um, and, and people who knew him and, and watched him a lot at the times would see him lead out or take a contested mark um, and turn around and kick goals so brilliantly. But it was a, quite a, a bizarre experience when you train with him because you'd do a full ground drill and, you know, he'd receive a handball off half back. And literally, I don't know if he'd ever been on half, in the half back line in an AFL game in his life, but he would, would receive a handball or pick up a ground ball, reel onto his left foot and hit a target leading at him you know, from 40, 50 metres and his skill level for a guy his size and his power and his intimidation was just phenomenal. So he he was incredible. I played with Plugger in one game in 1995. Um, we played Fitzroy and Fitzroy obviously struggling at the time. It was at, it was at the Witten Oval. They were playing the home games there and Plugger, I knew he'd kicked a bag to half time and I just walked past him in the change room and said, how many you kicked, Plug? And he just grunted at me and he said, 10. Like, okay. <laughs> Good. So he's got 10 to half time. And then he, um, he ended up being on 16 late in the last quarter. And Barassi took him off for some reason for a small, short period of time. I reckon he could have broken the all-time record. But he had a patch where he kicked 16 and the week before against Adelaide kicked eight. The week after that kicked seven or something. And he hadn't missed the whole way through. And he's kicking from tough angles. He was as good a set shot. So he was he was an absolute ripper. And Sydney really agreed with him. He was in a good, really good headspace for a guy who had – some challenges, um, you know, in his early days. He was just an awesome teammate, an awesome guy to play with, and it was just a great experience. Moving from there, you you go to the Western Bulldogs and 
and that's a club that has a significant imprint on uh, on your uh, footballing yep. background. I'm really interested in how you made that transition from being a player to within seven years becoming the CEO of the club. What type of pressure you might have felt being a, uh, that word custodian and, and how you got there as well? Because I understand there were a number of roles you took that led to that, that position. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I played there for seven years at, at the Dogs, obviously, and, and had a phenomenal time there. It was interesting because I had a year to run in my contract at Sydney uh, we played, lucky enough to play in the grand final in 96, um, had a poor start to 97, um, both form and injury wise, Byron Pickett, um, put my, my shoulder blade into, or, or my collarbone into about eight pieces one day. So that oh, ruled no. me out for a decent period <laughs> of time. And it just didn't have a good 97. And, um, the dogs were really interested. I had a year to run in a contract at Sydney 98, loved, as I said, my time there, um, great friends, great experience. And the dogs were really interested and they came hard at Sydney and, and Sydney were, were sort of nonplussed rocket was, Hey, you can stay if you want, you know, and I, he talked to, honestly about the midfield opportunities with really strong midfield that we had at the time and the dogs were really interested. So when you've got one club and coach super keen and another one who was, you know, nonplussed about it, it's pretty easy call coming back to Melbourne. And just had a ball, mate. The, the dogs now, um, you know, just amazing lifelong friendships that have come out of that for me um, to play with and, and now maintain friendships with the likes of of Robert Murphy, Craig Ellis, um, Luke Darcy, Nathan Brown, you know, guys, you know, that I just treasure as friends. But you go through this patch where they were, they were a battling club. That was the, that, if, if someone was asked you what, that would have been one of the first words that came together. And 97, that had a phenomenal year, just snuck up on everyone and, you know, obviously went within a couple of points of playing in a grand final. And then 98, we were just a hungry, aggressive, um, you know, angry, but still really skillful and dedicated team. Um, playing the lights with Liber and Jose and Dimmer. Um, Scotty Wine was a phenomenon as a bloke and as a player. And so I just had an awesome experience there. Love that. And then um, time came for me at the end of 2004 and it was, you know, t- it's always a tough transition, but my knees were pretty much shot. And if I wasn't, you know, as fit as I could be and pushing to the front of running groups and being able to train consistently, then I was always going to struggle. So it was the right time. Um, my wife, Lou, uh, we just had our daughter, Bridie, in April of that last year in 2004. Um I'd, I'd finished an MBA, so I'd done a master's degree at the end of 2003, and I had a pretty good inkling that 2004 was going to be my last year. So I went and had a chat to a guy named Abe Thomas, who was the CEO of Lease Plan, who was the sponsor, major sponsor of the Bulldogs at the time. Now, they're a fleet management company. And I chatted to Abe and said, Abe, I've got Thursdays off. Can I just come in here? Don't pay me. Just get some experience because I had all this theoretical experience through my degrees, but... You know, I'm 30 and guys my age had six or seven years of practical experience in the workforce. So behind the eight ball a bit there. So Abe was brilliant. You know, gave me an opportunity, came in every Thursday. This is a serious business. This is a billion-dollar business, fleet management. They've got back office, call centres, um, front office sales and customer relations team, uh, unbelievable HR practices and like. And I just spent time across the whole business, which – it was a bit like a, an executive apprenticeship. It was awesome. Mm. And he paid me. I got paid as well, which was brilliant. Um, so, you know, I had a, an amazing experience there. And then I got a job at Lease Plan, you know. Uh, the, I think it was November 1, 2004, when all my now ex-teammates were starting back at pre-season training. It was a Monday. I started my first real job in the workforce. And I was at Lease Plan for six years and had a ball. And it was funny 
a bit because, you know, I'd gone from living the dream, so like literally playing AFL footy to going, you know, suit and tie every day working for a fleet management company. And Lou and I used to laugh because I'd come home and she was, how was fleet leasing today? <laughs> you know, it's not quite, you know, going and, and kicking a footy around with your mates, but it, it was nearly irrelevant. I was just getting this experience. And they're a phenomenal country, company, Dutch-owned, very process systems-driven so the learning curve I went on there was phenomenal. Got promoted a couple of times, was lucky enough to them to show some faith in me. Um, whilst I was doing that, the Bulldogs asked if I'd go on the board. You know, Cam Rose and David Smorgan, the CEO and the president at the time, approached me and I was really pleased to do that. That had been phenomenal for me and if they thought I could help in any way, I was happy to do that. So I did that for three years and then towards, I think it was the end of 2008, um, they asked if I'd be interested to come on and work in a commercial role at footy club. And it was funny because we spoke before about David Parkin and sports administration, and I always had an interest in that, but it was never specifically footy. I always thought I'd end up working in sport in some manner, but I had a, a bit of an informal plan to work commercially for a decade to get some cred and experience and then see where the opportunities lie in sport. Um, in the meantime, going on the board was a no-brainer because it was a great experience. I was doing some commentary so that was all working all the while, you know, we were building a young family of our own. So I did that, um, ended up taking a position at the dog, running their commercial division. And then 12 months later, Cam, the CEO, left quite, quite unexpectedly. An opportunity for him came up and he thought he'd go and pursue that. And the board said to me, approached me and said, would you be interested in applying for the role? And I hadn't honestly thought about it specifically. Um, I was 35 at the time, still relatively raw. And they said, look, we're going to run a full process it's going to be driven by an external recruitment firm um we'd like you to you know put your hat in the ring if you're comfortable doing so and see how that goes so you know Lou and I spoke about it um in the end decided that it's worth a, worth a go and went in the process and was really fortunate to be appointed so that's sort of how we arrived there and just had a brilliant five years as CEO there at a club at the time that it was a really interesting period because spending millions of dollars less on their football program, you know, well under-resourced compared to the powerhouse clubs at the time and, you know, just had to, to rebuild it or not just from a list perspective but a football program point of view and also at the same time lobby for this thing called competitive balance or equalisation, which was mm. really, really important for, for clubs to have an even chance. Um, for those clubs that are smaller market, not as historically successful, have a whole bunch of historical disadvantages to give them a shot at winning it, which obviously the dogs, you know, ultimately did in 2016. Yeah. And, and it was uh, 2011 when you came in and, and there was a strategic plan that was, that was put into place. What were some of the key pillars of that and how it actually uh, was uh, coming into fruition with you winning yeah. the flag in the end? Yeah. It was, it was relatively straightforward and simple. We, 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 at the time the club was, around 11 million bucks in debt. Um, you know, the revenue that we were driving was, you know, in the absolute bottom half, uh, bottom quartile, if not at the very bottom. Um, the prospects were really challenging. And um, what we focused in on was the fact that we needed to get our core business as strong as possible. So I mentioned before, when you talk about footy spend, our recruiting division, which everyone knows how important that is, our high-performance department, our player welfare and, and player development, everything you could think of now that the the strong and consistent clubs that have got it right and contended for an extended period have, 
and are spending significant money and the dogs would have been in the bottom four for spend, if not at the absolute bottom. So done an amazing job in eight, nine and 10 to play in prelims and give it a real shake, particularly in eight and nine. The prelim in 210 was probably, you know, more on the down slope than the up slope in, in all reality. Um, so fought out its weight division amazingly well on that in that sense, um, but really needed to think about, okay, how are we, we going to do this? So we prioritised that as a cornerstone of strategic plan. And then the other thing we really focused in on was the fact that, you know, we're a club um, in the fastest growth corridor country, in the in, first growth, growth corridor in the country. So it just so happened that between Footscray and Geelong, you know, it was 80-odd Ks of vast un undeveloped land, flat land, you know, pretty windy, but that was where the next growth area of certainly Melbourne and Victoria was. Um, and we'd speak to the AFL. Gil at the time, who wasn't the CEO, but was really spearheading this, this push into southeast Queensland and western Sydney, they were driving that as a priority. And we sort of worked really closely with him and said, hey, we understand that. We get that concept. Go, go to where the people are, so where the growth is, virgin AFL territories, let's get new people supporting the game. 100%. But by the way, you know, 20,000 people a year are predicted to move into Melton, Wyndham, those those key local government areas that I spoke about earlier on. So we're going to make sure that we've got a strong, viable presence there. If you started the AFL from scratch, you'd put a team there. You know, it's interesting because there's Footscray, which is where the Bulldogs are. There's Carlton, there's Essendon, there's North Melbourne, all within this seven or eight kilometre radius. So you wouldn't concentrate it like that. You'd certainly put a team where that growth corridor is. So we we used the term the Bulldogs backyard and we just did an all-out assault. You know, we 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 worked with the local governments. We started a program called Sons of the West, which is a men's health program. You know, the, the health outcomes in that area are far worse than they are in more affluent areas of Melbourne. So, you know, we realised that we need to be a genuine player and not just a footy club doing a few clinics here and there at primary schools we need to make sure we make a significant and positive difference in the people of that region's life so men's health program um, youth leadership programs um, we worked with local hospitals community centers you name it we just worked on making sure that the people who are moving into that area and a lot of them new arrivals so we knew a lot of them wouldn't have the capacity or capability to be a member straight away but we thought if we do that right and build this community program that is genuine and, and successful, then when they do, you know, get on their feet and are able to follow something, they'll remember, you know, the citizenship ceremony that the Bulldogs did when they became an Australian citizen ceremony or their dad that they helped become really healthy through the, the yoga programs or the, the, the mental health programs that we put in place with them. And, you know, if we could get the footy right, the core business, plus have this really strong community bent and, and, and focus, we thought once they converge, it's going to be a pretty powerful mix. And I think, you know, obviously the dogs had that ultimate success in 2016 and the community focus has continued for them. And, you know, I think they're going to turn into a really powerful club. They've got no debt now. They made a few million bucks last year. They've got a great list. They're going to contend over coming years. So, you know, hopefully we're knocking them off, but they're going to be up there. And they're going to be a strong club. And I think they'll end up transitioning from a club that, you know, we talked about it earlier, might have been perceived as a battler historically to a really strong and, and viable presence in the competition for, for, for future years. I wanted to now jump into that we, which is Fremantle and and coming to Frio. Um, I remember your first press conference in 2020, or it might have been late 2019, where it 
was described as a coming together of circumstances. Mm. How did you embrace the town and, and do you remember your first few days coming in and, mm. and, and the reason why you came to Fremantle as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, mate. Absolutely. I, um, so when I finished at the Dogs and um, went on a really different course. You know, there were a number of opportunities to stay within footy and, and even sport more generally, but ended up working in a, in a family business, an agency called Bastion Collective, which was a great experience. The Watts family built up a brilliant business and I got introduced to them through some football contacts and just had a brilliant four and a bit years with those guys and really didn't have any significant drive to change that. You know, we were really settled in Melbourne. Kids were teenagers or just about to be, our three kids were teenagers or just about to be teenagers. So we're really settled in schools and the like, all of our family and friendship base was there. And the recruitment firm for the Fremantle CEO role reached out to me. And and the initial response was, hey, you know, thank you, but this isn't the right time. And and he the guy was, the guy was, Ivan was a really um, persistent sort of guy. He came back a couple of times and I chatted to a couple of people that I have, you know, good relationships with um, about the opportunity. And it just started to pique a bit of interest. And um spoke to a couple of people from very we were very close to the industry and the club about the club itself and and where it was situated on a number of different fronts and and then it sort of become a bit of interest in the sense that Lou and I had often talked about having a bit of an adventure and and maybe moving and probably got to the stage in our mind that it was a bit late because Bridie our youngest was in year 10 uh, sorry our eldest our eldest our child our daughter Bridie was in year 10 so starting to get a bit difficult to move then but once we got talking about it, we sort of got a bit more enthused and then we sort of made a decision, okay, yeah, we're up for this. And, and we might specifically made the decision not after going through a process and having an offer, but before going into the process because we both just thought if we're going to do it, let's do it and make the, the decision mm-hmm. first. And so then went into the process and was was lucky enough. It was interesting on that note. I rang Lou because um, uh, I came to Perth to do an interview and subsequently was offered the role while I was still in Perth and rang Lou and said, okay, we're on. And, and even though we'd made the decision that we're into it, once it was real, it was a bit of an initial different reaction. But we, yeah, we were, we were up for it. And, and the more and more I looked into it and the club itself and the history and, you know, doing some of my own research, the more enthused I became. And then you're right at that, that initial interview, I talked about it as a coming together of circumstances. Um, um, I'd done a bit of research on the history of the club and its formation. And then, you know, what I what we sort of tend to call our parent clubs in South and East Frio and the region itself. And I've always loved that type of stuff, love knowing a little bit about how things come to be and history of places and the like. And Frio's got such an amazing history as a town itself. Um, yeah, there was a lot that added up. And, you know, I've got to say now, you know, a bit over two years in, yeah, the, our interest and passion is only grown um, and getting to know more about the people itself, clearly the club, um, but the the place of Frio and, you know, clearly now Coburn as well, which is where our TNA base is. And it's got a lot of similarities out here to the western suburbs of Melbourne. I talked about so much growth. And so us getting that real balance of, you know, our, our spiritual home and us having that presence in Frio and that history as well as looking, you know, a bit towards the future as well is really exciting. Yeah, I do need to tip my hat off to you because I really noticed how you have embraced it and uh, even being on the members advisory forum and uh, when you do speak to the audience, I remember one of your uh, one of your talks just involved you having 
at the very beginning a photo of the Hugemont, hmm. and you talked about the history of that. And a lot of us in the room learnt about that for the first time. So uh, it, it is an incredible place, Fremantle. It has its own identity. And even when I'm around the world, it's like I'm from Frio, not from Perth, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can sense that. No, you're right. The Hugemont last convict ship to, to to transport convicts to Australia in the 1840s. And mm. now that site of where the Hugemont Hotel in Bannister Street has got so much history of itself. It's it's really cool when you start to learn and understand a bit of that. Um, and, you know, that's that's where we as a club come from and that's who we represent. So it's pretty cool. Now you've stepped into the role and then a couple of months later, you know, it really, um, cha- there's a really challenging time for humanity through COVID and, you know, we're all still dealing with uh, the the consequences for sport, for other areas of life. But I'm fascinated with how you had to navigate as a leader through the very tough times at the beginning, especially when we're talking about um, leading your team, your people, who are such an important part of the organisation. I'm, I'm really interested in how you how you went through all that. Yeah, um, you're right, B. I've, I've said a number of times that, Dale and the board, when they were selling the virtues of coming to Perth and Freo in particular, didn't didn't um, disclose the old fact that there was a global health pandemic on the horizon. Um, um, one of our board members, Andrew Hall, actually said at the at the January board meeting into 2020, when COVID was starting to get spoken about, you know, this thing was occurring that it's going to be a global health pandemic and it's going to have massive implications across the world. And at the time. You know, she was clearly in front of the game a little bit because surely enough, it was six weeks later where it started to really hit. Um, yeah, incredibly challenging time, um, most most significantly because of the impact on our people. Um, you know, you, you're seeing it from our broader membership base, but in those who've worked at our club, some of them, you know, for close to the entirety of our existence and having to stand staff down, um, you know, reduce their pay, their work hours, everything that went along with that, that clearly, you know, we were just one of of many, many organisations that had to do so. That was a really challenging period. Interestingly enough, it was probably slightly fortuitous that I hadn't been here for a long period of time, as you said, you know, literally a couple of months in. So I hadn't got those deep relationships with some of those people. So funnily enough, it probably made it slightly um less challenging to have those difficult conversations because those relationships weren't there but by the same token the the emotion and the impact that it was having was was massive so um we just had to like we do with all of these things and one of our anchors is club first you've just got to make a decision with all the information you've got at hand and keep it the the, the priority is being the overarching club so it can't be about individuals it's got to be the club so that's guiding principle and we've used that the whole way through and as i said it's one of our guiding anchors now and our people are phenomenal they're just so resilient and bounce back and as soon as we could bring people back we did and you know we've now it's sort of swung around a little bit for us from a people and and club perspective and that we've had a reasonable run in wa as we all know Hmm. um and you know we had nine home games last year lost a couple um the carlton game and the north game but apart from that yeah, compared to some of our competitor clubs that have done reasonably well. So hopefully, touch wood, that, that continues. But, you know, we're backfiring on all cylinders. Now we've got a few things to step through with, with borders and and um, quarantining and the like. But this, this organisation, as I said, it's going to endure a lot and um, come through the other side. And that's what we're seeing now. 
Yeah, and thankfully, one of the really impressive pieces of work that the club has been able to put together through yourself and the team has been the strategic plan uh, for 2021 to 2025. And uh, it was launched at the AGM back in November uh, 2021. So uh, I, I just remember being in the room that day and, um, you know, there was a, a air of excitement in the air. But then when, once you stepped on the stage, everyone just went calm. Uh, there was something about your presence and and you went through this presentation which introduced us to some of those anchors, those strategic pillars. Uh, take us through how do you actually set a strategic plan for an AFL club? You know, those steps and those stakeholders you have to deal with, I imagine it would be quite complex. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you again, mate. That's very complimentary. Uh, you might remember, Biddy, if you think back, though, I was about two minutes into my presentation and the whole attention of the room shifted to my left because the players who were going to go up on stage that night had just arrived. So I don't think my president had that much impact. They were far more interested in the, <laughs> the, the, the talent coming into the room, but that's okay. We got it back on track. Um, yeah, it was a really important piece of work. And it was one, so as you said, I arrived in November of 19 and clearly we would have loved to have done this far earlier, um, but obvious reasons we were just focused more on survival and getting through that period of at the height of the COVID challenges. Um, and that was where we put it off for a period of 18 months. And then what we, um, when you talk about the the steps undertaken to establish, um, build, and then implement a strategic plan, the most important thing is to have that element of um, input and, and involvement from your key people. So, this this was a this was a six month process that clearly um, critically had representation of all, all of our staff, our board, our playing group, um, you know, members. You know, we had portions of members and supporters who saw parts of it and would ask for their input into it. Um, you know, we we didn't involve the AFL directly, but certain areas we'd talk to them about our focus and get their input on certain things as a key stakeholder. Um, so. You know, a strategic plan that comes straight out of a CEO's office that doesn't have that level of input is going to really struggle to get buy-in because it can, you know, it might be one person or, you know, an executive team strategic plan, but no one else has real ownership of it. So that was the most important thing. So you can imagine that is significant amount of workshops and discussion groups and focus uh, surveys. You know, we surveyed every one of our, you know, part of the strategic plan is our purpose, vision, and values, we call it our purpose, vision, and anchors. That, that's how that evolved over time. Um, so getting input from everyone in relation to that is so critical because that's that's what's going to be a guide us. The, the purpose is, you know, our reason for being, why we exist. The vision is where we want to be, and then our anchors are what drives us on a daily basis. So to have them be effective, it, it can't be one person's idea of what works here. So to do that properly takes time and effort and conversations and facilitated workshops and the like. So that was really critical. Um, as you, as I mentioned at the at the AGM and have done a couple of times since, I, th- I think the one thing that really came through um, those those workshops and that input from all those different stakeholders was that we wanted this to be ours. You know, we wanted our purpose to be specific to Frio, and you know, many organisations and and ours in, ours had one that was that was really good. It, you know, it worked and it was logical and it was sensible. But it was also one that could have applied to, you know, all the other clubs in the competition. It, it was it had an element of of, of being um, 
applicable across the, uh, even other sports potentially. So, you know, when we now look at making, you know, sentences like making the Freo family proud or, you know, holding true to the anchor, um, you know, we called our values our anchors. You know, they, they can't belong to any other team anywhere, you know, in any sporting competition around the globe. That's that's us and that's something that was really important to our people as we work through the process. Um and now, mate, we're just starting. It's really starting to take hold within the organisation. We use it on a daily basis, decision-making in our language. And, you know, part of the strategic plan that gained some attention publicly is that we put ourselves out there a bit and put ourselves on the hook to achieve some things that we all want to achieve. And we just felt, well, hang on, as you said at the start, we're custodians. So this isn't this isn't my plan or, you know, Dale Alcock or the board's plan. This is This is our club's strategic plan. And, um, you know, when you're doing that, you want to make sure that the most important of our stakeholders, which is our members and fans, feel like they've got an insight into what we're trying to achieve. So, and that was why we went publicly with it. Often sporting clubs might keep pretty quiet because Mm. if you don't achieve what you're trying to achieve, it can draw a bit of attention to it. And we get that and understand that. That's that's a safe play, but we thought, no, let's, let's put ourselves on the hook and get after it. And thanks for embracing the anchor. You, as uh, people who can't see this, I'm wearing the uh, old school away jersey, and uh, it's great to see the, the club um, bringing it back to life as well. So that's brilliant. Just on that video, your listeners might be interested. That was funny because sometimes the anchor has been um, the object of a bit of derision from maybe opposition supporters or the like. You know, it's weighing you down. You're gonna, it's going to sink you. That type of stuff. Um, but it was our playing group initially who drove it. Um, as they worked through their player trademark during the 2021 year, and they were like, "No, no, let's let's embrace that. That's that's stability. That's strength. That's what you rely upon as a foundation." And, and now, yep, we've just we've literally. I'm just looking out at the oval now, and we've got a we've got an anchor stenciled on the set of wing here at Coburn. Anyone that walks into Coburn as soon as people can, and and you know we're open back up again with a slight bit of a lockdown at the moment. You'll see it all around the place. Um, you know, the, the player's trademark is called for the anchor. So, yeah, yeah, we, I don't think we could be embracing it anymore, which is really cool. One of the reasons I uh, invited you on, Simon, was a lot of people know about your Andy Brayshaws and your Kiara Bowers because you see what they do and, and they're the heroes for many. But something fascinating about sports clubs uh, and Frio Dockers is also the people behind the scenes. We talk about culture. Um, I would love to know what you uh, define culture as and how you think about that as as you've influenced that at Frio? Mm. Yeah, culture, I think, has has specific definitions and often you hear some um, some versions of it, which I quite like, and people will talk about culture as being, um, you know, the, the behaviours that you accept or that you promote within the organisation. Um, it's a, it, it can turn into a bit of a buzzword as well when people just throw it out there, values and behaviours and culture and the like. Um, you know, I think what we've looked to do is just establish some real parameters for us in, in relation to our purpose, as I mentioned before, our, our vision and our anchors that on a day-to-day basis really guide you because literally on a day-to-day situation in, in this role um, but across any business, you're you, you're charged with making decisions and sometimes they're pretty straightforward and easy and often they're really difficult as well too. And, and it might not be super clear, but if you've got a really strong set of values or as we call them anchors and a purpose and a vision, it's amazing when you refer back to them during these sort of times when you're figuring out what to do and it helps it become a 
a bit clear. So, you know, that's, I think having those, those really defined elements to help guide you, you know, building an environment where people feel like they have support. Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a tough cutthroat industry. So we've got to be high, high performance. We've got to be demanding, got to be accountable, but at the same token, we've got to build an environment where people feel comfortable, they feel included. It's got, it clearly needs to be diverse. Um, and it's got to be a bit fun as well. And that was a big thing for us that, yeah, we don't think success necessarily. And all those those strong definitions I talked about before have to come at the expense of people enjoying coming to work. So, yeah, I've probably gone a long way about answering it, mate. Hopefully it gives a bit of indication on what I see being the culture of the organisation. But I think our role, particularly senior leaders, is to create an environment that people love coming to get better um, and to improve and do their bit to make us as successful as we can be. Are you one to study other sports, to, um, you know, keep up to date with other industries that informs your role? Is that something you like doing? And I asked that because I was just uh, listening to Alistair Clarkson and uh, his jaunts to England and uh, to check out the NFL and and other competitions and how it informed his role as a senior coach. Just interested if you you do the same as well. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and probably not just limited to sports. I, I do. I'm a, you know, like I'm sure many of your listeners, Vidi and yourself, I'm a passionate sports follower. Um, love a lot of the US sports in particular. Um, but love love seeing successful organisations and just understanding how they go about it. We used the term culture before. I, I'd probably term myself as a bit of a culture junkie in the sense that I love hearing about, you know, whether it literally be a huge multinational corporation or, as you say, a sporting NFL team um, who've done incredibly well. Um, I love just digging into it a bit, doing a bit of research and understanding the things they might have done. Um, And that's certainly something we as a club look to embrace. Um, And, you know, it certainly doesn't have to be, you know, an AFL club. We need to look far and wide to get something that might be applicable or relevant to us and see if that be, can be something that that is relevant. And I know, you know, JL and, and Belly in particular are very similar, you know, voracious readers and studiers of other organisations. So, you know, we, we we feel like there's a lot that's that's on the right track at our organisation, but we're under no illusion. We've got a heck of a lot of work to do. Um, and, and we're not always going to get the answers from inside the Frio HQ. It's going to take a bit more than that. So yeah, I, I love that sort of stuff and constantly looking at where else we can get better from other other people. Simon, I'm very mindful of your time, but a- another thing I've been very complimentary of through the podcast as well is your clear communication. You know, ability to speak in front of heaps of people, um, big audiences, and and represent the club. I'm fascinated if you have always been a clear communicator, or is it something you've honed and and if so, how have you done that? It's a. I, I laugh when you say that, Vidi, because I, I think I was in year eight or nine, and my mum used to threaten to send me to speech elocution lessons because I was like a lot of 14, 15 year old kids and, and uh, boys in particular. And I've got a couple of them at the moment. And I think my communication on the home front was not much more than a grunt to mum and dad. <laughs> Um, when they wanted to find out about my day or ask me how things were going. So I don't think that was a a, um, a, a communication skill issue. I think it was more an intent issue <laughs> and, a, and, a, and an age thing. But I, I, I forever remember mum threatening 
me to, to send me to elocution lessons. Um, uh, I don't know, mate. I think it's it's certainly not been a huge focus. I find um, I've, I've never been particularly uncomfortable speaking to audiences or groups, particularly when it's a subject matter which I'm passionate about and, and have done my research. I find the only time I feel a little bit um, uneasy in those sort of situations is when I'm a bit underprepared or I feel like I haven't thought enough about it or done done the, the necessary work. So the instance you talk about at the general annual members meeting, whilst I didn't spend days and days preparing for that, it's, it was the culmination of six to 12 months worth of work in relation to the strategic plan and something that, you know, is a driving passion in my professional life right now. So I knew the subject matter well and then it was a bit about pulling together what I thought might be the, the right way to communicate it to our most important stakeholders and our members and then giving a, a couple of rehearsals because it's so important enough to do so. So, yeah, I, as I said, I think if it's something you're passionate about and you've done enough prep work, then hopefully you, you can communicate it in, in an effective manner. I also wanted to say before I left you, otherwise I'd feel bad, It's I want to say thank you to the club for standing up for really important social justice causes because so many people, young people watch, you know, and sometimes sport is proliferated with sports betting ads and alcohol and junk food. And it's really important that these things like um, free the flag and, and what the players take on as well, it's, it's promoted and, you know, with pride round and, and the like. So I want to know just as a club, how do you navigate those sort of social justice messages and um, and I understand there'll be flack on on both sides as well. Yeah, it's a really really interesting question, mate, and then one that's becoming more and more prevalent because you know ostensibly we're not a political organisation, we're we're a sporting club. And you're right, it's not unusual for us to cop a fair bit of criticism, you know, for not just sticking to footy, you know, get on with you know winning games of footy, which clearly is our overriding and unequivocal priority. That's what we do, but. At the same token, we have we have a significant platform. We're lucky enough to have, you know, on a yearly basis, even as even though we haven't been as successful as we like over the last few years, been have fifty thousand committed members who are willing to spend their money with us, and we have significant hundreds of thousands of more supporters, and we're on a we're in the biggest sport in the country, and you know we're on the back page of the major newspaper in this town every second day, sort of thing. So that with that comes a significant platform and an ability to you know, to to influence to a degree. So it's a it's a tricky one, Evie, because there's a lot of people who might not necessarily agree with some of the stances we take and, and they're really important people to us in our club because they're members and Fremantle is a really important thing in their lives. So it's a it's a fine line to tread. Um, the safe position, and a lot of sporting clubs do do this, is to remain um, on the fence on a lot of these things. And that probably means you, 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 it causes you a little... A lot less headaches and 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 challenges, but we think when there's things as important as some of the issues you raised that are critical to our people, you know, the people who play for us and work for us and support us, then you know we think it's the right thing to do, and we we look at it as case by case scenario. We try to do it in the right manner, um, and you know we think we arrive at the most of the time anyway the right sort of position. Now it's going to be people that. Are unhappy with it we understand that um we understand our position in the world and what our primary focus and role is but at the same token i think you know we can walk and chew gum at the same time on some of these really important issues final one simon because i know you got to go do you have any books that have influenced you in your career 
Uh, good question. Um, yeah, I think I'll give you I'll give you a couple. I, I um, the best sporting book I ever read was Andre Agassi's book. I think it's I think it was called Open. That's it. Just did yeah. I just thought it was brilliantly written and it was really transparent and just yeah. I thought that was that was really cool. Um, in terms of you know management or lateral thinking sort of stuff, there's a guy called Malcolm Gladwell who's brilliant. Just a brilliant guy, and he, he's written a number of books, Tipping Point, and um, uh, a couple of others that just really get you thinking. And he wrote one called David and Goliath, which was a bit about you know beating the odds and how people think things can work in a bit of a favour of one, but if you look at things a bit differently. And I really that really resonated. And and then the third one, I I, I used to read far more than I do now um, because of different demands, but. If you just talk about a fiction book that I love that still, if you say what was one of their favourite can't-put-down books was a book called Carlito's Way, which was turned into a movie. It's an American crime gangster. Al Pacino played Carlito Brigante, um, and it was an awesome movie, and the book just captivated me. I don't know why. I just always remember that and just a couple of excerpts from the book itself and then it was one of those ones where they just nailed the adaption, the screenplay, and the book and the movie was as good as a book kind of thing. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple anyway, mate. Well, Simon, this was captivating as well, mate, and uh, an absolute honour and pleasure to, to hear um, where, where you're heading and, and your story. So it's something that we're really grateful for and hopefully there'll be a time we get to catch up at some point. But uh, all yeah. the best for, for this year and beyond. Let's hope you achieve everything and, uh, and more in the strategic plan. No, thank you, mate. I've enjoyed the chat. And, um, yeah, Biddy, any time I can chat to a passionate Freo supporter, which you obviously are, given the jumper you're adorning right now and, and your knowledge of the place, I'm more than happy to. So thanks for taking the time and thanks for your support, mate. Can't wait to see you at the footy. There we have it. Simon Garlic, CEO of the Dockers. Thanks, Simon, for bringing your A-game. You can find show notes and goodies on friodejanero.com or abidimam.com. Till next time, keep smiling, keep scoring.